So you can open up to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to read from some selected places there, and then also partly from chapter 7 as well. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now and thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have delighted for thousands of years to call frail, weak men to be your herald. And Lord, we ask once again that your spirit would attend to us and that the messenger of heaven would speak to this, your people, that they might hear, that they might see, that they might believe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me, we'll give honor to God's word. Beginning in chapter, chapter 6, verse 5, and reading through verse 13. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them and the earth. If you turn over to chapter 7, we will read from verses 11 through verse 24. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with him, entered the ark. And they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died and mo that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Hopefully... Um, the title of this morning's sermon is, is, is a bit provocative because in some ways um, it ought to be. 
Lord of Vengeance. That is not normally how we like to think of God, as a Lord of Vengeance. In some ways, that's what we're dealing with in this text, and I think it's right for us to begin to wrestle with this in some ways. I want us to to think about this because in some sense, the way I want to frame this discussion this morning is from this perspective. Every single person in this room has had something happen to them that you said, that was unjust, that was not right, that was not fair. And probably if you've lived long enough, you've had multiple of those experiences where things have happened. And I want to even up the ante here a bit because if you've lived long enough as a Christian, there have even been times where you've had other Christians that have really wounded you incredibly deeply and hurt you to where you basically open up to the Psalms and you start reading these imprecatory Psalms of, you know, Lord, dash their heads upon the rock and, and, and you wonder if you could pray that even against them and you're left with this turmoil of saying, these people have done so much harm to me that I just can't even begin to deal with how hurt and how angry and how enraged I am. There's a sense in which the heart says, I want, and not only do I want, but I demand revenge. This deed must be dealt with. And we see it throughout our culture, don't we? I mean, for some of you, maybe one of your favorite stories of all time is the Count of Monte Cristo. But the whole point of the Count of Monte Cristo is what? That a man who has done wrong gets his day. He gets revenge. Everything that was done to him, he turns it back towards those who did it to him. And history is replete with these things. We, we in some ways root for Rambo, don't we? Because basically they drew first blood. I mean, that sheriff's a jerk. And the guys who are with him are a bunch of punks. And here's Rambo just minding his own business. And he gets his guns and he takes care of business and he makes them realize, you know, you can't do this to people. See, all of us have within ourselves, we resonate to some degree with those kind of things. It's, it's almost as Americans ingrained in us, isn't it? The, the idea of the underdog, the idea of the, the guy who everybody's had their foot on their neck and, and, and finally he rises up and avenges himself. He bides his time. My uh, stepmother sent me an email the other day with a, a picture in it, and it said, be careful how you treat people. And it, basically what the, it had a number of pictures, and the pictures went like this. There's this big dog in the middle, and there's these two small Alaskan huskies, and I think the dog was like a, some kind of larger spaniel. And the pictures keep moving down the frames until finally these two Alaskan Huskies are the same size as that Spaniel. And then the next frame is they're a little bigger. And the next frame is and finally the Spaniel who looked enormous in the picture at the beginning of it, by the time you get to the bottom, is dwarfed on both sides by these gigantic Alaskan Huskies. And the point of the picture is what? Be careful how you treat people. You never know what they might grow up. I mean, there's something just ingrained in us to say, you know, maybe that big dog was just letting those little puppies have it, but now they have their day as they stand next to him looking down at him. We have this idea in our, in our psyche which says we ought to get 
vengeance. But I want to read to you a couple of places, and you can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to turn there to the first one is Isaiah chapter 34. And I want us to look here. And I'm going to read from verse 5 to verse 8. And I just want us to begin to think about this and kind of let it permeate us. And this is the Lord speaking. And he says this. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord is a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. And listen to what the next verse says. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Now that's one place I want us to read. The next place I want you to turn to is Romans chapter 12. And I'm just trying to give us some texture as we begin to look at this passage in Genesis. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. And it's interesting, many of you will have as the heading of this section, marks of the true Christian. And I want you just to listen to how these things move us forward. And you will kind of begin to get the texture. The Apostle Paul writes and says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, somehow, what we need to come to terms with is, is that you're not wrong to think that somehow vengeance needs to take place. But somehow, people are wrong when they want to say, I demand vengeance. And they begin to take matters into their own hands. And what I want to begin to do, and the first point I want us to look at this morning is the problem of vengeance. I want you to understand that there's a problem. Because there's a sense in which you cannot say to a person who's been abused, who's been afflicted, you cannot say to a woman in a war-torn country who's been repeatedly raped by a platoon of men, you know, you'll have your day, get over it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, we, we must take seriously the ravages and the wickedness that this world purveys on people. We, we cannot be indifferent to that. We, we must really see the horrors. You, you can't tell a, a kid that lives in the inner city whose uncles and brothers and big sisters and other people have been shot and just say, you know, 
get over it, brother. That's just the way life is, right? I mean, we, we know that, that something can't be right about that. We can't be indifferent to suffering and hurt. Somehow, that has to matter. And what I want you to begin to think about is, is that coming out of Eden and moving forward from Cain and moving into where we are in Genesis 6, what I want you to think about is this. Adam and Eve have been told this, that Eve's desire would be to usurp her husband and his desire would be to dominate her. And if you begin to work that out into culture, what you begin to see is, is that you start to have this notion of one person always or a group of people seeking to usurp the power structure and the power structure seeking to put it down. And you see this cycle of domination and revenge, domination and revenge, domination and revenge. And if you kind of start to see that, you kind of see that motion moving as you move through these passages and we come to the place where we are with Noah. And what I want you to begin to think about as well is there are generally two types of people as they think about vengeance. There are those who demand it, and usually people who demand vengeance are people who have really suffered immensely. They're usually people who've been hurt. And they say, there needs to be something done about this. And sometimes there are people, especially if they're, if they're in, in the more dominant position of, of life or society, who tend to say, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Get over it. That's just the way it is. Work harder. Do better. Sorry. Get over it. There's other folks who basically, the idea of anyone coming in and doing justice, committing violence of any sort as a repercussion, they can't stomach it. The idea of anything or anybody doing anything hurtful to another being, they just can't stomach it. It's just, it's just unfathomable to them. And in one sense, what you have is, in one way, is you kind of have the two extremes that everybody kind of works away from. You have radical hawks, people who just basically say, any reason you give me is a good reason to go to war with you. And other people who say there's never, ever a good reason to do anything hurtful, ever. Which you realize that a limit, if you take those two extremes, what you live with. If you live with people who basically just say peace at all costs, what they really end up with is no peace at all. You can't say peace, peace, and imagine it into existence. On the other hand, those who seek to live by the sword, die by the sword. And we see, this, we see this wrestling within the world of these two general types. And I realize those are, those are huge. I'm saying there's a gradation of that moving all across the spectrum. Those would be two extremes. And here's ways, though, that people often will justify vengeance. One way that people can justify vengeance as we look at it is this, and this creates a problem, is naturally. They say it's the normal outworking of society, Right? I mean, look out at, at the plains of the Serengeti. What happens? Big lion eats weak critter. Lion gets old. He gets eaten by the, high, the pack of hyenas. Right? Lion cub gets out by himself. Pack of hyenas lays into the lion. They never take advantage of the bigger lion. But, you know, I just want you to realize that we understand the quote-unquote law of nature, right? The stronger prevail. The way to overcome the situation is to get strong and to prevail. 
So lots of times people justify vengeance by saying, well, they did it to me, and I just bided my time till we got strong, and now we're going to do it to them. It becomes this natural process, if you will, and it's just viewed as that way. The, the bigger eats the smaller. There's also a sense of people justifying vengeance emotionally. I have been hurt. You have no idea what I've been through. Don't you see what's been done to me? They must pay. They've got to pay. I just, I'm, just been, I'm just too hurt to even think about any other issue. They must pay. And I want you to think about it from that emotional scale how that begins to widen out to a situation like the Balkans. I mean, do you realize how long that, those people groups have been, one of them gets strong, they dominate, another one gets strong, they dominate, another one gets strong, they dominate. Realize the First World War came out of that region of these inner struggles and slaughterings of people. This wasn't some, the Balkans wasn't some new phenomenon that hit us in the 20th century. It's been going on for eons of time. Revenge, revenge, revenge. And so to act like somehow this is not relevant to us or to, not, to somehow come to Genesis chapter 6 and say, okay, what has this got to do with anything? What has it got to do with the fact that God is a God of vengeance? What has that got to do with how we live our everyday lives? What's that, how does that even remotely help us? How do we look at this and begin to think about this in a way that is helpful? Well, I want us to think about this. Christopher Hutchins, I think, asked a good question. And for those of you who don't know who Christopher Hutchins is, Christopher Hutchins is an atheist, and basically his basic premise is this. He is unwilling to accept a view of God which says that God basically has allowed human history to go on and people to, per to perpetuate great evils against one another and that he's just waiting to do something about it. And he says what's even more unstomachable, if that's such a word, is the idea that somehow God did something about it some 2,000 years ago. Do you not see all the wickedness that people have done to one another? And I want to say to you that as I watched a debate the other night where Christopher Hutchins was making those points, I said, I, I basically thought in my mind, that is perfectly relevant to what we're going to be looking at on Sunday morning because that is a totally legitimate question. Somehow there has to be an answer for wickedness, for evil. Somehow we have to deal with the subject of vengeance. Somehow we have to deal with the fact that people do things to other people that are hurtful. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is, is that Christopher Hutchins is not alone, and one of the people that addresses this very issue was Nietzsche. And Nietzsche basically said, if you get rid of God, moral outrage against things being done to you, it's just merely you trying to have a power play. It's merely you trying to say, I don't like the way the world is, I wish the world was more like the way I want it. And Nietzsche says, who gives you the right to determine how the world should be? So you see what we're back at. What Nietzsche's saying is without God, what you really end up with is just a bunch of people saying, I want the world like this. No, I want the world like this. Well, so all the people who want the world like this gather in this group, and all the people who want the world like this gather in this group, and all the people who want the world like this gather in this group. It's a power play. 
So we're right back to the natural process. Who can get the most people? If there's no God in this discussion of vengeance, then, then whatever someone decides to do is, is, is morally acceptable. You have no right to be outraged. You have no right to be offended. You have no right to say it should not be like this. If we as Christians merely say let's have peace without any sense of justice, then we leave people to continue in violence because they believe God is unwilling to do anything about it. See, this is the problem with true pacifism if you want to take it to that extreme. If you just say we ought to be at peace, just be peaceable, just do everything you can to keep the peace. If we just talk about that without any real sense of vengeance, any real need for vengeance to take place, do you understand what we end up with? We end up perpetuating violence among people. Why? Because if people believe God's never going to take up the sword, if people believe that God's never going to do anything about injustice, if somehow Hitler and Stalin just get away with it, don't you understand what that perpetuates? It perpetuates the Balkans. Is there any justice? Will anyone do anything about these problems? See, if there is no God to deal with vengeance, then the woman who's been raped, who gets a gun and teaches her how to shoot it, and goes and blows the guy away, is totally justified. Who's to say she's wrong? Why is she wrong? The family who was mass murdered except for the youngest son, and the son grows up to one day avenge his parents and, and, and to take care of business because of what was... He's totally justified. There is no answer for living at peace if there is no vengeance. You understand the dilemma. You understand the problem. Because in some sense, what we're be, really being said here and what's really drawing us into this thing is somehow we're supposed to strive, you heard what Romans says, to live at peace as much as it depends on us. Which means you're actually willing to feed your enemies. You're actually willing to care for your enemies because that's where the passage goes next. Don't hate your enemies. Instead, care for them. Love them. Show them charity despite what they've done to you. And see, we're right to say, how can we do that? How can we live that way? See, in some sense, it's overwhelming to think about it. And if you say, well, just get over it, you've never really been hurt, really. You never had someone do you wrong down to the core. Because if you have, if you've ever been really wounded, you know that there's no amount of pacifying and patting someone patting you on the back and stroking your hair that's going to make it okay. It's not okay. And that then brings us into this text, I think, and begins to help us understand what's going on here. If we look at this text then, what we begin to see is this. The heart of man. Go back up there to verse 5 and look at what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what I want you to think about is something along these lines. It's the idea that we're going to do whatever we want, the way that we want it, and as long as we have the power to do it, that's what we're going to do. I mean, isn't this a struggle that every single human being has, isn't it? I want to do what I want to do, the way I want to do it, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. And I want you to accommodate me. Doing what I want to do. When I want to do it. 
the way I want to do it. Was there anybody that, that, that drove by as you were going home from, or from, from some situation, you know, you'd had your feasting and whatever, and I, I, we laughed because as we drove home from this huge feast we've had, we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for dinner on Thursday evening, and we kind of looked over and said, wow, all the, all the, uh, all the stores are closed. So, you know, if you, if you didn't have your meal already set up, if you wanted to have something to eat that evening, you were kind of having luck because there wasn't any stores open. There wasn't any restaurants open. It was pretty much solidly closed that evening. You are pretty much out of luck. Now, there's a sense in which you can almost drop by and go, well, what are we supposed to do? I mean, every other day of the week, the In-N-Out Burger is open, the McDonald's is open, the Burger King is open. I, I want to get something to eat. Where are people? Why aren't they around? Why aren't they here? And I make that trivial kind of discussion because do you understand how most of us think when it comes right down to it? When you drive to the store and it's 6.05 and you need that part to fix your car or to fix your computer or to fix whatever it is you need to fix and it's 6.05, let's make it better, it's 6.01 and they lock the door. And you drove all the way across town because it's the only store that has it and you live in Continental Ranch and you drove all the way over to the east side. And you were doing your best not to break any trap. You were trying to be a good guy. And you get over to the other side and they lock the door. And you go, just, I just need this. And you say, I just need this one piece. I mean, it won't take five minutes. Sorry, we're closed. We're closed. What's going on in your mind? You're irate. Come on. Oh, come on. All of you are not so... You know, brother, I just, I just know that's the Lord's will, and in His good providence, he that's not how we're thinking at that moment. That's what we probably ought to be thinking, but it's not how we're thinking. At the moment, we're enraged. How dare you lock that door when I drove all the way across the city to pay you money for a part that that's what you do. You sell parts, and I came to give one. Don't you see that we look at this and we say, oh, that was them. They were wicked. They were evil. They were vile. And what I want you to understand is, don't you see that that's exactly... The, the them is us. I want what I want, the way I want it, when I want it, and that when I want it is right now. The way I want it is exactly how it best suits me. Why can't you figure out that you're supposed to cut out the fabric of my life to perfectly fit me. You're my tailor. And every single one of us at some level feels that way. Every single one of us operates that way. And understand this, if you saw a society that was allowed to continue to perpetuate that and perpetuate that and perpetuate that, what kind of world would that be to live in? And that's what you're looking at in this text. The world had come down to a place where there was one man and only by the goodness of God one man stood and was a preacher of righteousness. As Peter tells us, he preached to the people and said, the wrath of God is coming. Prepare. Vengeance is coming. There is a day of reckoning coming. And they did not listen. They went right on marrying and giving in marriage, doing what they wanted to do, the way they wanted to do it, exactly how they wanted to do it, when they wanted to do it. And the rain came. You see, at some point, we have to become people who are able to understand 
that this is what God is saying. This is what perpetuates this world is people being about themselves. And what we love to do is to say, well, I'm not a person that's about myself. I'm about other people. No, really, I am. And what we need to come to terms with is lots of times, even more about other people, it's really about ourselves. I feel good when I help people. It makes me feel like I have a place when I help people. I love to see people smile. It's just great to see those poor people's hearts warmed when we talk to them. I just feel so great inside when someone says, I believe in Jesus. So we'll take it off doing deeds of mercy and we'll move it to something like evangelism. Or it's just so great for me when I see someone for the first time open up the Word of God and see clearly the covenants of grace. It's just great. I just love it. Now, is there anything wrong with feeling... No, there's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to understand that far too often, if we're really honest with ourselves, the motivations that are operating there are not all pure. Even there, there's this sense that we are doing this because we get some kind of internal pleasure out of it. Ourselves, personally. We like doing that because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we've got a reason for existing. It makes us feel like we have purpose. In some ways, maybe even it helps us make up for some of the bad things we did when we were younger. The idea here is the heart of man moved to this place. And I want you to drop down to verse 13, and I want you to look at what it says. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. And actually, it'd be a better translation if they did this for you because it would help. The, the word that's being used there in 13 of violence is also the word later on which says, Behold, I will destroy. So the real idea is that what God is saying is, The heart of man is full of destruction, and I will destroy him. That's what he's really saying. Man is a perpetrator of destruction. That's what he does. He has become a being which does nothing but destroy. And see, none of us really want to deal with that in our own hearts. We don't really want to think about that. But I think we have to, and this text wants us to think about that, because there's a division that's being struck out here between Noah and between the rest of the world that we have to see. Noah is a man who acts righteously. Noah is a man who has a heart for God. That's what it means when it says he walked with God. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It doesn't mean he never did anything wrong. It just means in the instance of building the ark and building it to God's specifications and doing all the things that God had called him to do, Noah did them. And throughout this text, it continues to tell you, and Noah did what God commanded him. And Noah did what God commanded him. And Noah did what God commanded him. Does that mean that Noah always nailed perfectly straight? Does that mean he always... No, I mean, Noah made mistakes. I, I can assure you. They, they had half the ark built and realized, oh no, we've, maybe we've put the wood this way or we didn't put the pitch here. And they had to, I don't want us to get obsessed with this. It was just this flawless masterpiece. And Noah, just everything he did was perfect. Noah lived in the real world we live in. But Noah's desire was to do what God commanded him. And it's imperative that we see that because Noah stands out and is striking his heart is standing in contradistinction to the rest of humanity. And there's a point for that that we will get to in a few minutes. But I want you to begin to see what's going on here is that the world has basically got a man who shows up. He, in general, lives out a life which shows forth his commitment and his trust in God. 
Rain and blood are coming. Wrath is coming. I'm building an ark. Come get in the ark. And it had nothing to do with it. They would have nothing to do with it. They aren't going to deal with it at all. They're going to laugh and scoff and do their own thing. And in fact, what they're ultimately going to do is they're going to keep on destroying. Marrying and giving in marriage, killing and being killed, eating one another up until there's nothing left. That's what you're left with here. And so what I want to do then, as we look at this, we've seen the heart of man. We see what man is like. We see what's happened to him. We see what the dilemma is here. The final thing is the heart of vengeance. Now, the way I want to look at the heart of vengeance is this. I want to compare and contrast, in some ways, Mars, the god of the Romans, and I think he's Ares, and, uh, and the god of the Greeks. And I want you to think about that god. And what that god basically does is he rejoices in warfare. He rejoices in human suffering. He rejoices in carnage. He rejoices in revenge. Any reading and perusal of writings in Greek mythology is a notion of the god of war is a god who basically lives for war. He loves destruction. And I want to I want you to think about that because in some sense, there's a sense in which the reason why Mars was created was because, in some sense, the idea of human suffering and human frustration is being expressed through this God, right? There needs to be a God who basically... And notice what it's doing in, in humanity. What it's doing in humanity is saying this. No human being would be a good human being if they loved carnage and war. So see how that you want to distance yourself. It's a God who does that. On the other hand, we demand vengeance. We want vengeance. And therefore, there must be a God who brings it. You see the dilemma, the human dilemma that's there again in Mars. We don't want to really believe we're those kind of people, but we need somebody to believe it so that it gets done. That's how Mars was created and how he was viewed. As opposed to that, I want you to look at the text and what it tells us about God. What it tells us about the Lord. And I want you to look at what it says here in verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I want to read that again. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, I wanted to say something right out of the gates as I read that. Some of you are going to immediately go, well, that's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't really grieve to the heart. God can't change. God's... When you do things like that, folks, you just gutted the text. Whether this is supposed to be being communicated to us, I honestly don't. I'm not God. I don't know what God thinks and feels except what he's revealed to me. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I don't, I don't, I'm not God. He's infinite. I'm finite. He's vast, I'm right here. So when I read in the text what it tells me, I'm not trying to undermine the sense of maybe God doesn't really feel, at least certainly not the way we feel, but somehow he wants us to know that he's not indifferent to human suffering. So if we move to a, a theological treatise, we gut this text. This text is trying to speak to our hearts. 
This text is trying to deal with the problem of vengeance. And I want you to see that. Don't you see it? Man's heart is only evil continually. He wants to destroy. He wants to do what he wants to do. He gives no thought or concern but for anyone but himself. And maybe the few around him, you know, kind of the mentality of us four and no more. But that's it. And over opposed to that is God. And God was sorry that He had made man. And He was grieved in His heart. See, what I want you to begin to think about is, what do you do with that? You see, that begins, if you really believe that and you really begin to listen to that, that has to start to confront you in every way possible. Because in some ways you have to basically realize that if God was grieved and God brings destruction in the flood, He still spares one man. That one man goes on and all his posterity gets on the ark with him. His three sons and their three wives plus Mrs. Noah. And they all get on the ark and they come out the other side and we already know that one of his own sons sons will be the father of the Egyptians and the father of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and all those ites that will plague Israel. So if we read far enough in the story, we know what's coming. And somehow you have to start to ask yourself the dilemma of saying, how can God let this go on? Wouldn't it be a whole lot better if He just said, I'm going to wipe the whole thing out, we're going to spare Noah and his children and they're all going to be good people and we're going to be done with this thing. See, the only way you can begin to deal really with the perpetuation of frustration and evil in this world is to understand that throughout history, God's tears stain it. Don't you understand that's what's being said here? God looked down on the earth and said, I am so Sorry. And he was grieved to his heart. Now that doesn't solve the answer to it because obviously you're going to say, but why? And this is the only answer I can give you. God must have a good reason. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? He has to have a good reason for letting it go on. So at some point in, 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 in the grand scheme of things, there has to be a reason as to why God has let evil keep going on. I mean, we have to give an answer for what Christopher Hutchins and others ask. How can a good God let evil go on? And Christians keep trying to come up with good answers. And I think the only good answer is there is a God in heaven who weeps over this and has a good reason for letting it go on, of which he's not chosen to share with me. I don't know the full extent why. And any explanation you try to give, even if you try to start to come up with one, and there are some helpful things that certainly are in God's Word, but at the end of the day, the real issue is, you're just going to have to trust me. And that's why I think verse 6 is there. See, what kind of God am I trusting? Am I trusting a God who stands in the heavens and says, I've got a big hammer and a big sword and I'm coming to whoop? Or do we see that in some real sense, as the flood comes, God's tears are added to the water? This is a God who grieves over what humanity has made of themselves. He grieves. He grieves Him to the core. 
And if we can begin to see that and start to think about that, then we, then we come back and look at the promises God has made because God promised to save a people. He'd already promised Adam and Eve, I'm going to save a people. And we see him do that in Noah. And we see the realities of this, and I want to at least say the few things Christologically that are going on in this passage. Noah obeys. His people get the benefits. We see that. We see the realities of that. The ark. Look at the mercy of God in the ark. We read in chapter 7 the fact that the waters which kill everything are necessary so the ark doesn't smash into a mountain and get a big hole in it and sink. Do you see that? The floodwaters of destruction actually elevate the ark above all the mountains. If you And for you scientific guys, go do this. But I've been told that if you actually do the measurements of, of the ark and its, its weight and the dispersion of water and how deep it would have sunk and you look at how high the water had to have risen over the mountain range, you'll find that there's just enough room for the ark to cross over the highest peaks. The waters of destruction actually act as a means of mercy to God's people. We see all this in this text, but that still doesn't necessarily answer our whole issue of, but what about vengeance? What about the Lord who's perpetrated this vengeance? Well, see, at the end of the day, you can't really get all of it dealt with until you come to the cross. Because, see, don't you see what happens at the cross? At the cross, this amazing thing happens. Jesus dies on a cross, and this is what is left. All of God's wrath, the flood waters of wrath, are poured out on Jesus in full weight. All the vengeance of God is aimed at that one person. Every bit of it. Full weight, full bore. All the vengeance. See, in some sense, you have to realize, and we, we have to do as Christians, to be willing to take hold and say, when Jesus died on the cross, all the vengeance of God was satiated. See, do you remember what we read in Isaiah 34? My sword is satiated with the blood of bulls and goats, with the sacrifices of Edom. And do you understand what God's really saying? He's saying that Jesus became like those God hates. Jesus became Hitler. Jesus became Stalin. Jesus became that kind of wickedness. That's what the scriptures are saying when it says he became sin who knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. So you have to come to the cross and begin to realize that God, this isn't just some Jesus spread out his arms, he died for your sins, ooh, so warm and cuddly and, and, and feel good, and, and now we've got, now we've got Jesus. See, see, what you have to see is this, this God of history with tears and with a sword who takes that sword to his son. He pours out his vengeance on his son. All that vengeance that should come to you, he poured out on his son. For what purpose? So the people might be redeemed. See, to the world, this makes no sense. And I'm going to explain to you why. Because what they say is, but that doesn't give me satisfaction. But see, isn't the whole point of you getting satisfaction a misunderstanding of who really deserves vengeance? See, who on this planet doesn't deserve vengeance? Who on this planet doesn't deserve the sword? 
Who on this planet has lived a life so right and so honorable that you don't deserve to take the sword yourself? See, if you don't see this, that you deserve the sword, and you, then you will never appreciate the fact that Christ took the sword for you, ever. As a Christian, you'll never appreciate it. And as an unbeliever, you'll never be satisfied because there'll always be what more is there. I need justice. Unless you say, well, that's not enough, even God has said that's not enough. And you know why I know that? Because Second Peter tells us this, that there are people who live even this day who scoff at the message I just said, that Jesus Christ has paved the way for people into heaven, that vengeance has been satisfied in Him if you will come, that repentance is true and free and will actually get you where you need to be which is set free from guilt and sin, which is set free from the need for vengeance, which will actually enable you to care about other people more than you care about yourself. Because quite frankly, when you read Romans 12, it's almost overwhelming. If that's the true marks of the Christian, I must not be one. I mean, it's overwhelming to read that and think about what's the call of a true Christian. And that's what I'm trying to say. If you really read that, you realize, I'm guilty too. I deserve the sword. They ought to whack my head off and be done with it. But this is what Peter says in 2 Peter, that they're going about life just like they did in the days of Noah when the floods came. But there is a day coming when the earth will be purged with fire and all those who have not found their refuge in the ark of Christ will perish in the flood flames instead of the flood waters. We have to be a people that believe that God does not laugh at sin. He does not laugh at evil. He cries over it. And we have to be people who understand that that kind of God is our God and that kind of compassion has been shown to us. What kind of compassion ought we to show to others? And here's a few examples to end the day of application. As Christians, if we really believe this, if we really believe what Jesus has done, then we have to be people that say we do not look to get even. And it has to be a heart commitment. I am not going to give even. That's not how I live. That was the way I used to live. It is not the way I live now. I do not look. And so when I see it, what do I have to call it? That's sin. The only thing in my heart, when it says, I'm going to get even, I'm going to get you back, all I have to do is just say, that's evil. That's sin. And that was paid for at the cross. <laughs> Secondly, we don't seek to dominate. Now, that's hard, men and women. That's hard. But see, the, the point is, is that there are people all around you at work, at play, in your neighborhood, and other things where you, even when you turn a blind eye to them, there's a sense in which you have given them over to be dominated because you don't care. And it's a sense in which we must care. We cannot just be indifferent to people's plight. We have to care about the younger brother. We have to care about the weak and the disenfranchised. We must as Christians. There's no other option. We must care about them because we are people who stand against domination. We stand against it. We don't believe in it. We don't perpetrate it. We don't give fancy to it. We don't allow it to go on while we say, be warm and well-fed, brother, as we walk the other direction. See, that's what James is after. 
You can't just say, I'll pray for you, be warm and well fed. That is being indifferent. We can't be indifferent. We have to be people who care. Which also means that when people are suffering, Christians of all people ought to be the kind of people that when people are hurting, they come to the church and say, I know that you're the kind of people who care. The church cannot be full of people who are indifferent. It must be full of people who say, I know what it's like to be deeply wounded, profoundly hurt. I know what it's like to say, I want vengeance. And I know where to go. I go to a God who says, it's not okay for people to hurt other people. And they must have their day in court. But also go to a God who is a judge who weeps and is made a way of mercy and is made a way of hope. And we ought to be those who bring hope. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.